let you know we've been preaching through the gospel of Luke, and we are here in chapter 3. We've already looked at the narrative of the, the birth of Jesus, as well as John the Baptist in chapter 4. The author Luke will start to speak more about Jesus, but here while we're in chapter 3, we see the last message that John the Baptist would preach. And he is the forerunner of Christ, and he was there preparing the way for, for Jesus. And we have learned from the Gospel of Luke through the preaching of John the Baptist that there can be such a thing as shallow or superficial repentance. So John preached very hard truths. He preached a harsh message, some would say. He preached a very confrontational message, uh, a very uncomfortable message. But he preached a message that really ripped the mask of, of the hypo hypocrites that were there. He, he, they, they were forced to rip the mask of those who thought that they were good people and even thought that they were godly in some sense. So he dug down deep into the hearts and John preached repentance and he was concerned about false repentance and he was concerned about shallowness when it came to the, those who professed to know Christ. So we'll be reading from Luke chapter 3 this morning. We're going to finish the, the sermon that the message that uh, John the Baptist would preach. So we'll read from verse 10, Luke chapter 3 verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? So remember that question came from the response of the message that he had preached to them. And many were convicted in their hearts and they said, what shall we do? So here's the answer in verse 11. He said to them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Father, we ask you please to teach us this morning. Thankful, Lord, that we have your word that we can open and that we can study and that has been preserved for us 
And we know it is inspired. We know it is profitable for our instruction and our training in righteousness. And we ask, please, Lord, that you would train us this morning from your word, that your spirit would open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, and help us understand why you have recorded this for us today. So please, Lord, we pray that we would respond in a manner that would honor you this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So John MacArthur, he said the following about false repentance. He said, false repentance is grounded in selfishness rather than the honor of God because it has nothing to do with the honor of God and only has to do with the regret that a person has because of the consequences of sin. It's not built on the fear of hell or the fear of dishonoring God. False repentance also leaves the feelings unchanged. The love of sin is not subdued, and the passion for holiness is not initiated. I believe that what MacArthur is saying here is biblically correct. I remember a story of a man who came to visit a pastor, a friend of mine, and shared with this pastor that, that he had sinned against his wife. He had committed adultery and that he was sorry for what he had done. And of course, there were many tears, and the pastor told him that he needed to go back to his wife and repent, and of course, face the consequences of his sin. But instead of showing characteristics of true repentance, this man went right back immediately to the same sin and to the same woman that he was committing this sin with even though he said he was sorry. And I think this is an example of what appears to be false repentance. Any individual that returns to the sin that they had repented of have not really turned from their sin. So think about this for a moment. How many times have you said sorry to your spouse or a friend or your children that that you have hurt Only so that you can keep the peace. And the only reason you have done that is just so things would be the same. You're not really sorry for what you've done. Maybe you're sorry for for being caught. And you just want to smooth things over. Well, the problem is, of course, this is false repentance. And this is what John was, was dealing with. You know, saying sorry is just telling people how you are feeling, isn't it? Sorry is just telling people how you are feeling, and they don't want to know really how you are feeling. What your wife or your husband or your children or your friend really wants to know is that you are going to turn from that sin and not do it again, and that you really are asking them for the forgiveness of it, not really sorry for being caught. Are you willing to repent of those sins? That's a question that John is asking us. And that's a question he presents before these people that he is preaching to. Remember, they have known the scriptures. They have been very religious people that he is addressing here. But still, they are not willing to recognize their, their sin. They're not willing to turn from their sin and ask God to forgive them for it. This is the message of repentance that John is preaching. And even with all of John's hard preaching, we can see it still became clear that there were many people who who were false repenters, 
many shallow repenters who came out to see him and to hear him, and they were even baptized. But many were not willing to humble themselves and turn from their sins so that the, the fruit of repentance would be seen in their unselfish acts of love or their unselfish life of love toward others. So my first point this morning is signs of repentance. And we see that from verse 10 to verse 14. So the crowd is getting the, the seriousness of the message. We can see that. And here they're told they have to have a life that demonstrates this true repentance. And we ended the message last week with the question in verse 10. Probably from people in the crowd who were becoming convicted of their sins. Verse 10 says, And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? So the crowd was there. And we can see that they didn't want this axe to fall that John had been preaching about. They didn't want to face this judgment. We don't want to be thrown into hell. So what must we do? What does God want us to do? And here's the answer in verse 11. And he, John the Baptist, answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So the word tunic refers to an, an undergarment. And, and of course, you only wore one undergarment at a time. So if you had two undergarments, you had an extra one. And if somebody had an extra one, they were to share that. They were to, to give it to somebody else. And of course, the same applies to the food. If you had extra food, share it with, with somebody else. So remember, the question is, what must we do? And John is saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So this is the kind of fruit of righteousness that John is talking about, that he is telling them to provide for, for everybody to, to see. And we know the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. But the second great commandment, of course, is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's, that's straightforward. And the Jews knew that very well. In fact, Leviticus chapter 19, they knew because it was part of the, the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that was all over the Old Testament, not just in Leviticus. And they knew they were to love their neighbors. They knew they were to sacrifice for their neighbors. They would show their love for God by how they, they loved each other, how they loved their neighbors. They would show a, a transformed heart by unselfish and generous acts of kindness with their, their friends, their, their neighbors. And that follows all the way from the Old Testament right into the, the New Testament, doesn't it? And we're told, even in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus would say, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how do we show that love? Well, we wash each other's feet. We, we, we serve each other. We share extra food with those that don't have. We share extra clothing with those that, that don't have. In 1 John chapter 3, we studied that last year. The scripture says in verse 17, If anyone 
has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So if we say we love God, but yet we're not willing to, to love our neighbors, there is no fruit of righteousness, correct? That's what, that's what John is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what the apostle is saying. And if the love of God doesn't dwell in us, then don't assume that you are a Christian, that you are a child of God. And that was the message that he would preach to the Pharisees. That is the message he would preach to the Israelites. And this is a profound truth. In fact, there's more underneath than appears actually here on the, on the surface. In unregenerate people, there is always selfishness. Please remember that. That sounds simple. But in unregenerate people, there is always selfishness. When I talk about unregenerate, I mean unsaved people. People who haven't been changed by faith in Christ. But of course, the opposite is true for those who are saved. Those who have been regenerated by Christ, by the Spirit of God. Those who are regenerated, there is evidence of repentance, isn't there? There is fruit of repentance. And that fruit is not selfishness. It's selflessness. Very different. In fact, the opposite. We will have this consuming love for one another. Where we look out for the needs of others, not just ourselves. But please hear me carefully. John is not talking about works that we need to do in order to be saved. He's talking about fruit of salvation. Remember, first comes the root, and then comes the, the fruit. If our root is not in Christ, there won't be the fruit of righteousness. There won't be fruit of repentance. Look at verse 12. Tax collectors come to be baptized. And they say to him, teacher, what shall we do? So this is another group now that comes to John. And they're asking the same question, but their circumstances are different. Their sins are different. Their challenges, their temptations are different. And this is the group of the tax collectors. And Luke here uses them to illustrate to all of us the same point. And these, remember, tax collectors were the most hated people in the country because they were Jews who were collecting taxes from other Jews for Romans. These tax collectors abused their position and they extorted money from people and they were scorned by the, the Jewish people. They were hated by the, the Jewish people because they were thieves. They were thieves who were representing Gentiles and their idolatrous, idolatrous government and taking money for them from God's people from Israel was a, was a serious offense in, in the eyes of the, the, the Jewish people. They were the traitors of all traitors. They were the abusers of all people. And they were associated with prostitutes and, and drunkards. And they went around collecting taxes. They went around collecting all types of taxes, land taxes, um, sales taxes, poll taxes, anything that they could come up with. And John must have made these tax collectors 
feel convicted for their sins because here they want to know what they need to do. They were wanting to repent of their sins. They wanted to be ready for this Messiah who would come and lay the axe to the tree. And we see in verse 13, he tells them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Now, of course, the Roman law had been written and had been instituted. And, um, but of course, it was never really adhered to. It wasn't obeyed. And John is saying, just take what you're supposed to take. Take what the law stipulates. Don't take more. Don't take anything else. And what he's saying here is love is manifested by a transformed life, by being fair, by being honest, by being just. That's a beautiful picture that John is painting here, isn't he? If we are transformed, if we are regenerated, if we are truly believers, there will be this fruit of fairness. There will be this characteristic of integrity that we see in the scriptures, that we see as a characteristic of God himself, isn't it? This fruit of Christ, this justice and this fairness and honesty. But look at verse 14. There's a third group that comes to, to John. And they the soldiers, most likely Jewish soldiers who were questioning the same, the same way. And this would have been probably a repeated scenario. Look at, look at the verse. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? So what is the fruit of repentance for us? What are you looking for? What is God looking for from us? And he says to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by accusations and be content with your wages. Three things here that, that John is pointing out. The first one, do not take money from anyone by force. Well, the Greek word here for, for force literally means to shake down. We're familiar with that term, isn't it? We know police cops and even soldiers who shake down people um, in, a, in a cruel way. They intimidate them. They, they threaten them. And soldiers did that. They did that then, and they, they still do that today. They rob people. They had the authority. They had the power. They had the weapons to do that. They could shake people down and take whatever they wanted. That was common for soldiers during that time. But no, notice the second thing there. He says to the soldiers in verse 14, don't accuse anyone falsely. So, of course, people in positions of authority, and especially those in, in the police force, can do that. They can abuse their position and use their ability to twist and pervert evidence in, in order to convict people who are innocent. And of course, perhaps in some cases to blackmail people for money and fining people on false charges and extorting them by fraud. It happened then, it still happens today. And the third thing, look there, John says to these soldiers in verse 14, be content with your wages. Be content with your wages. <coughs> so this is a greed issue. It's greed. Discontentment is because of, of greed. And they were greedy. They were discontent over their, their wages. And we know that's all it takes to turn a, a police officer into a, a criminal, isn't it? How many stories have you heard or have you seen on television of, of, of police officers who have 
stolen drugs or been involved in some kind of a scam or even selling drugs, using their, their power and position to, to corrupt. And if they were content with their wages, this wouldn't have happened. But John is simply saying to them, listen, soldiers, if you are truly repentant, if you have truly turned from your sins, then there will be fruit of righteousness. There will be honesty. There will be integrity. There will be justice. There will be fairness. There will be love that will be manifested in your life. So let the fruit of righteousness or the evidence of repentance be seen. This is exactly the opposite of how unforgiven, of how untransformed and unregenerate people act, isn't it? There's no fairness. There's no integrity. There's no justice. There's no love. And if someone is truly sorry for their sins, I'm not talking about just feeling sorry. I'm not talking about your, your feelings. If someone is truly repentant, there's evidence of it, isn't there? There should be. There should be love. And those are righteous virtues that evidence a changed life. And I've had many people come to me and say, Gareth, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I truly am a Christian? Well, the first thing I ask them, is there fruit of righteousness in your life? Is there evidence of a changed life? Have you turned from your sin to worship the true and living God? And John is saying the same thing to us. He's saying the same thing to the audience here that he's preaching to. Are you a true repenter? Have you reflected on your personal sin? And have you honestly turned from your sins so that you can worship the true and the living God? It's a question worth asking, isn't it? It's a question that needs to be answered. Our second point, we see John, the forerunner. We see that in verse 15 to verse 20. Now, all that John, John has told us is evidence of what of true repentance looks like. But it's impossible. True repentance is impossible, and fruit of that repentance is impossible if the object of our faith is misplaced. And that might be the most important thing that you hear today. So please hear that. What is the object of our faith? You know, we all know moral unbelievers, isn't it? We all know people who are unregenerate, who are not saved, but still they are, they are kind to a point. They are honest to a point. And they even show contentment to a point, isn't it? But if their faith is not in the true Messiah, it counts for nothing. It counts for nothing. And John is telling us here in these verses that true repenters have to receive the true Messiah. And now we turn from the signs of repentance and we turn to the one alone who can save. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, 
But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now at first glance, first reading, we again see the, the harshness of, of John here. We see this hard truth that, that John is preaching and maybe you don't see anything else. But what we really have here is very important. You know, John is declaring that the coming one, the Messiah, is in fact God. He is in fact God. So this is a, is a, a wonderful statement. This is a great statement. It's an important statement on, on John's part about the Messiah, that he is in fact God. And there's plenty of reason why John is not the Christ, because the Christ can do things that John cannot do. And that's all that he's saying here in these verses. John is saying, I can baptize with water. Um, you can baptize with water. We all can baptize with water. But he's saying, I cannot baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm unable to do that because I'm not God. Only God can do that. That is supernatural. Only the Messiah can do that. Now look at verse 15 carefully. As the people were in expectation. So another version says, while the people were in a state of expectation. So try and imagine the, the scene here. Try and picture it. There is a heightened level of expectation that had been heightened by the, the ministry of, of John. People thought that he was the Messiah. He was speaking bold, clear truths that were there in the Old Testament. But John was a herald. We know that he came to prepare the way. He came saying he was the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied that we read about in chapter 40 this morning. Isaiah chapter 40. He was the voice crying in the wilderness. And everybody was going to John. He was in the wilderness. All Jerusalem was there. All of Judea was there. And they were literally having the expectation because John was preaching. So in the Old Testament, Messiah is called the expected one. And the Jews were waiting for the Messiah, the coming one, the expected one. In Luke 7 verse 20, we see even the Messiah is called the expected one. So they were eager. They were waiting for this Messiah. And it was very natural for them to wonder, as it says in verse 15, in their hearts about John, as to whether he might be the Messiah, whether he might be this expected one. And John gives them a very clear answer right there in verse 16. Look there. John never claimed to be the Messiah. He says, Christ is mightier than I. The one who is coming, the expected one, is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. What he's saying is we are on two different levels. I'm not worthy to climb up and be his lowest servant, to even touch his shoes. He is superior to me. 
You need to understand that, people. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist, the prophet, says, Jesus must increase and I must what? Decrease. John was a prophet. He was a faithful prophet, but he was not the Messiah. And there was no doubt about that because he fulfilled the, the office of a prophet. He preached about sin. He preached about repentance. He preached about forgiveness. He preached about judgment and salvation. That's what prophets do. John did that. So John answered and said to them in verse 16, As for me, I baptize you with water. That's all I can do. But the coming one, the expected one, who is mightier than I, when he comes, he will baptize you not with water, but with what? The Holy Spirit and fire. Now, this is a completely different category. Now, we're talking not about the natural level. We're talking about the supernatural level. But what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? This is not an uncommon question. This is something that I've had to explain many times. And John has already made mention of fire in his preaching. We've already seen that in the first few verses. In verse 9, he warned that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now he goes on to clarify in verse 17 that the Lord will soon gather the wheat into his, into his barn and he will burn up the chaff with fire. So there's a context here. There's a context that we cannot ignore. It's very clear what this fire represents. This is not talking about a, a second baptism. It's not talking about a, a fire of, of revival. This baptism of, uh, this baptism of fire is a fire of judgment. It's a fire of judgment. It is a fire of the, the wrath of God. This unquenchable fire of verse 17 refers to the eternal punishment of those who reject the gospel. So either we, we gladly accept and embrace the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, or we shall meet the fire of judgment. Those are the two options that we have. And that's what John is saying. That's what Jesus will do. He will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That means new life, folks. That means salvation. Or you will be baptized with fire. There's no halfway house here, folks. There's no middle ground. It's very dogmatic. Very clear. But don't get sidetracked here. This passage is not teaching about a model or a method of, of um, spiritual gifts or, or even of revival. What this passage is teaching very clearly is that John is superior, sorry, Jesus is superior to John. Jesus is superior to John. John is just the forerunner. But Jesus is the Messiah. John is saying, I can't save you, and I can't condemn you. I can't give you the Holy Spirit. That's way beyond me. The only one who can do that is Almighty God Himself. And Jesus will immerse you in the Holy Spirit, or He will immerse you in the fires of hell. And John is saying, I don't have the power to do that. So John is pointing us here to the object of our faith. 
And I think that is the main point here. The point is the object of our faith. John is pointing people to Jesus. He's pointing to the one who is, in fact, God. So he's challenging their, their faith here. He's challenging the object of their, their faith. What is your faith in? Is your faith in your traditions? Is your faith in your nationality? Is your faith in your, your good works? Or is your faith in the Messiah? That's what he's saying here. And Jesus, he's saying, is the Messiah. He's the one who will come and divide all humanity into two camps. Those who will receive eternal life, who will receive the Holy Spirit, or those who will be condemned and burn in the lake of fire forever and ever. Only two camps. We've already seen the illustration of the woodsman he, who is about to start chopping down the tree. Now, now here in verse 17, John uses a different illustration. It's the illustration of a farmer who has a, a winnowing fork in his hand. And he's clearing the, the threshing floor. Now, a winnowing fork was, was like a rake that was used to, um, to separate the, the wheat from, from the chaff. And we saw this in India quite a few times. The farmers would, would take the wheat and they would throw it up in the air. And the wind would come and they would blow away the chaff. And the good wheat would, would fall to the ground. And the farmer would do that the whole day, throwing up this wheat so that the wind would blow away the chaff. What does he say here? This chaff would be gathered together and be burned. So the farmer has already picked up his winnowing fork. He is ready to begin the process of separating the wheat from the chaff. And there will be no stopping this judgment. There will be no separating there will be no stopping this separation. There will be no suspension. Either you will be found to be wheat or you will be found to be chaff. There's no middle ground. Either one or the other. The judgment will be thorough. It will be unstoppable. It will be irreversible. Look at verse 17. It says clearly, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John was pointing people to Jesus. And he was challenging their faith. Make sure, he's saying, make sure that the object of your faith is in the Messiah. Not in anything else. Of course, he was confronting their, their understanding of sin and of their own self-righteousness, wasn't he? John was faithful in his ministry. He was faithful to prepare the hearts of the people and then present to them the Messiah, the one who could save them from this unquenchable fire. He never took the credit for himself at all. He told people, he must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that there was no one greater than John the Baptist, no one born of a woman. But this still did not stop people from hating John. He was very popular, but he wasn't very liked. And that's because his message was very clear. It was very straightforward. We see from verse 19 that because John rebuked Herod for his adulterous marriage to his own niece, 
He was imprisoned by the king and finally beheaded. However, he had faithfully finished his God-given assignment. And he prepared the people to meet the Messiah, the, the Son of God. And one application here before we move on. Now, being faithful to the gospel is not going to win you any popularity contest. Not everyone is even going to repent when you share the gospel. Now, Herod didn't respond with repentance, but rather added to his many, many sins by by locking John up in prison and later executing him. But in spite of the consequences, John did not soften the message of the gospel because he knew that neither Herod nor anyone else would come to Christ unless they were first convicted of their sins. Folks, we need to hear this. We must remember that we do not We do no one any favor by tiptoeing around the the issue of of sin or by sidestepping the the serious nature of sin. We should never market the gospel as a way to have a, a happy life or to have a healthy life. Until a person comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that he sees that he is guilty before God and justly guilty before God, he will not appreciate God's grace. He will not appreciate God's goodness that was shown to all of us at the cross of Christ, isn't it? I've said this before and it's worth repeating. But being forgiven little You will always love Christ little. And that leads me to my last point. Jesus the Supreme. And the way Luke represents Jesus' baptism minimizes John's role here. In fact, he's not even mentioned here. This is all about Jesus. He even downplays the the baptism itself here. But Luke emphasizes that after the baptism, while Jesus was praying, Heaven was was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and and a voice came out from heaven affirming, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. This is God, this is Jesus, this is the Trinity right here, folks. A wonderful picture. The fact that Jesus would even submit to baptism, of course, teaches us that he is willing to to sympathize with us, to identify with us. And the fact that heaven was opened opened shows that that Jesus and God were were breaking into human history. What a wonderful picture. We aren't just left to do what we want to do. We aren't just left to our own devices. God has broken into human history and given us His Son so that we can be saved from our sins. This is a wonderful picture here. And I don't have a lot of time to to explain this a lot, but please go read that. The Father is pleased with His beloved Son, which assures us all that He is satisfied with the offering that Jesus will give on the cross. He is satisfied. He is pleased with His Son. And if we are in Christ, the beloved, then we are accepted by God. 
If we are in Christ, we can present, we can be presented before a holy God. And when you bear witness, always bring people back to the exalted person and work of Jesus Christ. That's my point here. That's my main point here. Jesus the supreme. When you're sharing the gospel, folks, make sure you point people to Christ. Now, one of the, one of the struggles I have when, when people sometimes share their testimonies, they always tell people how bad they were. They always talk about their, their sins and, and what they did in the past, and they, they almost glorify their sin, but they don't point people to Jesus. They talk about how, how they chose Jesus, how they realized what they did was wrong, and how they now are walking in the, in the right path. And then they, they, they don't mention Jesus the Supreme. They don't mention God. They don't bear witness of the exalted work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. If we point people to Jesus, if we lift him up, John tells us, he will draw men to himself. We don't have to tell people how bad we were. We don't have to tell people about how excellent we were. We have to tell people how supreme Jesus is. Point people to Jesus and he will draw men and women to himself. The main point is the object of our faith. That is the main point here. Don't put your faith in your abilities or the lack of your abilities. When you share the gospel, don't put your, your faith in your powers of persuasion or, or the lack thereof. Trust Christ. Trust the gospel. Trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't water down the character of Christ. And that's the problem, folks. That's what John is warning us about. We need to tell people the character of Christ, that he is holy, 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 and that he will judge sin. And then we need to see our sin as God sees it. And we need to agree with God about our sin. And we need to see Christ as the only propitiation for our sins. Don't water down the character of Christ in order to market Jesus better to unbelievers. Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. How many times have you heard that? Come to Jesus, he will make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you heard, God is holy, and he will judge sin, and he will send sinners to hell. How many times have you heard that? Don't water down the truth of the gospel. Believers, or unbelievers will be offended by the gospel. They will be. They should be. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Unbelievers think what we're preaching is foolishness, and that's okay. Let them think that. Be faithful to the character of Christ. Be faithful to what the gospel says about Christ. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.18 that sinners are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, 
greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So we have a big job, don't we, folks? But trust the gospel. Trust God. Trust Christ to break through this this defense that sinners have. That the gospel has the power to save. Romans 1 verse 16, Paul said it himself. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. We can't twist people's arms, folks, to to be followers of Jesus. We can't manipulate people to turn from their sins. We have to trust the work of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Make sure you don't water down the truths of the gospel. I'm sure you know the story of the Titanic Well, the Titanic was supposedly unsinkable, but we know that it hit an iceberg on her maiden voyage, and it sent 1,517 people to their watery graves. What you probably don't know is that most, if not all of these people, could have been saved. There was another ship close by called the, the Californian, and that ship had passed within the sight of the Titanic, and they had made radio contact at 11 p.m., but at 11.30, the captain and the wireless operator of the Californian, they went to bed, and 10 minutes later, at 11.40, the Titanic hit the iceberg, and although the officer on duty on the Californian saw the, saw the distress rockets from the Titanic, he wasn't sure what they meant, and he couldn't, he couldn't arouse the, the sleepy captain. And a report testified that if the Californian had responded, many, if not all, of the lives of those 1,500 souls would have been saved. They would have been saved. But aren't we often guilty of the same thing if we're complacent while people around us perish? We need to be sensitive. I'm not suggesting that we, we use offensive methods to share the gospel with people. But what I am saying is that we need to warn people. So we need to tell them about this fire that they are going to burn in unless they turn from their sins, unless they repent of their sins. We don't water down the gospel. We don't hold back from warning people about sin and, and judgment. We must tell them about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and and how they must trust in Him alone as their Savior from the the wrath to come. And that's the message that John is sharing with us this morning. And I pray that we would all, like John the Baptist, be bold, despite the consequences that may come, that we would be faithful in pointing people to Christ, even if it costs us. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're not saved. And you have not put your faith in Christ alone. And maybe you can identify with the people that, that John is talking about here. Maybe you don't see the, the fruit of repentance in your life. Maybe you have been putting your faith in your parents' religion or even in your, in your family or even in your, your church, but you haven't been putting your faith in Christ. 
Or maybe you can't see any evidence of this fruit of righteousness in your life. Maybe you prayed a prayer once in a, in a church or Sunday school, but there has been no change in your life. There has been no repentance. Then maybe today is the day of your salvation. Maybe today is the day where you will receive this gift that only God can provide. That only God has secured by sending his son Jesus to die on that cross for you. Who would take the punishment that you deserved so that you could receive this eternal life that only he can give. If you have not been saved, come and speak to me afterwards. I would love to sit with you and pray with you and to show you how you can be saved. Why don't we close in prayer this morning? Father, we thank you for your son. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he would die a very cruel death. A death, Lord, that would pay the price that was necessary for our redemption. Thank you, Lord, that he lived a perfect life so that he could die this perfect death, so that his sacrifice would be perfect in every way. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to go and offer gold or incense or coconuts or sugar or rice in the temple because Christ has already paid the price that needs to be paid once and for all. He is supreme. He is above all. He is God. And He has called us to be His own. What a wonderful truth, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would help us to live lives that display evidence of our repentance, that would display fruit of righteousness, that we would live lives that would honor you, that people would see our good works, they would see our love, they would see our integrity, they would see our justice, they would see our love, and they would glorify our Father in heaven. Please, Lord, help us live lives that reflect your greatness to the world around us. Forgive us, Lord, where we are holding on to sins. Forgive us, Lord, where we have not repented. Forgive us, Lord, where we are being self-righteous, where we are making excuses for our sins, or we are blaming other people for our sins, or blaming other people for our bad attitudes, our sinful attitudes. Please, Lord, let the Spirit of God show us today our need for repentance. I pray today if there are people in this room who do not know you as their Lord and Savior and have never cried out to you for the forgiveness of their sins, that today would be the day of their salvation. May we never be guilty of neglecting so great a salvation and showing people how they can be saved. Keep us faithful, keep us honest, and keep us walking in the paths of righteousness that you have set before us. For the sake of your great name and for the joy of all the people here, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.